All right, good evening, comrades, and welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight is August 22nd, 2023, and I want to thank you all for being here. Tonight's class is going to be continuing the series that we started back in May on the history of U.S. imperialism. This class is going to be on the dawn of the Cold War, and what we're going to be learning today is a bit about American imperialism between 1945 and 1960, the machinations of U.S. imperialism at home during this period, and American imperialism's effects abroad during this period, including military interventions. Series recap. History of U.S. imperialism origins cover the development of American capitalism into American imperialism and the imperialist wars of the turn of the 20th century, including the Spanish-American War, the Philippine-American War, and the Banana Wars. History of U.S. imperialism World War II covered the American development in World War I and the reaction of American anti-imperialists to the war, as well as American imperialism in the interwar period between the First and Second World Wars. History of U.S. imperialism World War II covered the American involvement in World War II and the mixed reality of the U.S. playing a progressive role in fighting fascism while American imperialists still profited from and benefited the war, as well as American business dealing with Nazis. All right, so uh, this is this class isn't on the Red Scare. We're just touching it because this period destroyed or um, really hurt the communist movement, which, uh, you know, the communists were the, the biggest force against imperialism. So they're intrinsically tied together. McCarthyism and the Red Scare, named after Wisconsin Senator Joseph McCarthy, the McCarthyist period began in post-World War II America and lasted through the 1950s. It was a sequence of campaigns aimed at the repression of communists, socialists, fellow travelers, and anti-war protesters. In March 21st, 1947, President Truman signed the Executive Order 9835, which was also called the Loyalty Order, which instituted, quote unquote, loyalty screenings within the federal government. These then resulted in the elimination of employment and, quote, the Loyalty Review Board shall currently be furnished by the Department of Justice the name of each foreign or domestic organization, association, movement, group, or combination of persons which the Attorney General, after appropriate investigation and determination, designates as totalitarian, fascist, communist, or subversive, or as having adopted a policy of advocating or approving the commission of acts of force or violence to deny others their rights under the Constitution of the United States, or as seeking to alter the form of government of the United States by unconstitutional means. On the side, we have a poster of this was a movie that came out. It was a uh, propaganda to make it seem like the communists were these, uh, you know, were just taking over the U.S. And there is some truth to it. There were a lot of communists in the State Department at this time, but uh, this uh, sort of film built up a hysteria against the communist movement. And uh, this is 
from a pamphlet called Red Banner's Menace America by Eugene Dennis, 1946. He was a current general secretary at the time. So this was a passage called Worth Reactionaries Are Most Rabid Red Baiters. But make no mistake about it, America's pro-fascists who demagogically allege that there is no difference between communism and fascism, they know better. These gentlemen hate, slander, attack, and persecute the communists. Yet these same gentlemen coddle the Nazis, the Japanese warlords, and the cartelists. They free the seditionists to betray again, protect the lynchers to lynch again, and condone the KKK to spread flames of hate with its fiery cross. The red baiters, the enemies of democracy and peace, are hysterical because we communists resolutely champion the cause of American Soviet friendship and cooperation for peace. They are doubly furious because the majority of the American people agree with us and support FDR's program of big three unity as the key to a long-term peace. In order to discredit us and disrupt the struggle for peace, the vultures of reaction and war renew their cry that we communists are quote unquote foreign agents. And that's basically what we're being called today with uh, supporting the anti-fascist campaign in Ukraine. But it is our accusers who are alien to our country and its enemies. It is they who marry their dollars into the Japanese Zaibatsu and the Nazi trusts. The only loyalty they know follows their investments in the international cartels. House Un-American Activities Committee, HUAC. HUAC was a committee of the US House of Representatives to investigate alleged subversive activities of communist organizations. HUAC investigations led to the blacklisting of 300 actors, directors, and other Hollywood workers. Blacklisting led to the prevention of continued employment, i.e. they were mostly fired or kept from being employed in the future. Pleading the Fifth Amendment did not stop them from being blacklisted, and even the claim that an employee was a communist sympathizer could lead to blacklisting. Failure to testify in the House Un-American Activities Committee proceedings would lead to criminal charges called contempt of Congress and sentencing to prison time and fines such as in the case of the Hollywood 10. Smith Act and Harry Bridges, excerpts from Free Speech and the Good War by Richard Steele. For nine and a half weeks in the summer of 1939, Bridges, Landis, and the corps of lawyers for each side made the daily round trip by ferry boat from the San Francisco Embarcadero to Angel Island in the Bay, accompanied from time to time by some of the more than 60 witnesses who gave testimony. The proceedings were well covered in the press. At the end of December, coincidentally, on the same day that Attorney General Murphy announced his campaign against the un-Americans, Landis issued his findings. There was no doubt he concluded that Bridges had friends and associates who were communists and that he worked with them in his various labor activities. He had freely admitted as much, but the Supreme Court had recently ruled in the 
Trekker case that proof of current membership or affiliation with a prescribed organization was required for the government to deport an alien accused of radical beliefs or associations. And the evidence Landis declared established neither that Harry R. Bridges is a member of nor affiliated with the Communist Party of the United States of America. That should have settled the matter. It did not. Landis's high reputation failed to ensure the acceptability of his findings. Critics characterized his careful hearings as whitewash, and those who believed that Bridges was a communist or merely wanted him silenced continued to demand his deportation. In the spring of 1940, in the midst of the fear-filled and intolerant political climate engendered by the fifth column scare, Congressman A. Leonard Allen, a freshman from Louisiana, decided to end the pussyfooting and make Congress's will unmistakable. On May 14th, Allen introduced a bill directing the Secretary of Labor to take into custody and deport to Australia the alien, Harry Renton Bridges. The bill was unanimously endorsed by the House Immigration Committee, and in mid-June, it passed the House by a vote of 330 to 42. Attorney General Robert Jackson was outraged. For the first time, he wrote, Congress proposed to single out a named individual for deportation and by directing that the action be taken regardless of any other provision of law, in effect deprive him of time-honored legal protections. Bridges, Jackson pointed out, had been investigated and tried at great length and found not guilty. What, he asked, becomes of equality before the law of the impersonal and impartial character of our government if it is to select unpopular persons to suffer a disadvantage or punishment. Jackson concluded by observing that there, were, there was no condition existing or threatened that requires arbitrary legislation or banishment by legislative fiat. Harry Bridges, he conceded, might be all that the bill's authors suggest, but he was insignificant compared to the repressive implications of the efforts to get rid of him. Some congressional leaders agreed that a law mandating the punishment of a named individual and hence akin to a constitutionally prohibited bill of attainer was beyond the bounds of legislative propriety. Nevertheless, convinced that the longshoremen had to go, they devised a compromise that would circumvent the Strecker decision and without naming bridges, provide a legal basis for securing his deportation. A provision was inserted into HR 5138 the omnibus anti-alien slash radical bill that would later become the Smith Act, which provided for the deportation of any alien who at any time after entry had expressed revolutionary sentiments or affiliated with a prescribed organization, which it did not name as defined in the 1918 legislation. Congressman Sam Hobbs, a moderate in the current controversy, joyously informed his colleagues that the Smith Act would accomplish Allen's objectives in a perfectly legal and constitutional manner, since the Department of Justice should now have little trouble in deporting Harry Bridges and all of the others in a similar ilk. FDR signed the Alien Registration Act of 1940, Smith Act, into law in June. At the same time, he transferred jurisdiction over immigration and naturalization matters from the Labor Department to the Justice Department. The move, which Perkins welcomed and Jackson strongly resisted, 
met the demands of anti-alien forces who had long complained that the Labor Department was sympathetic towards radicals. Bridges' fate was now largely in Jackson's hands. But the Attorney General was in no hurry to apply the Smith Act to Bridges or anyone else. He would later say that the idea that the country could be made safer by deporting radicals was a fraud that served only to make martyrs of the intended victims. Many department officials shared this view, but senior INS lawyers, disappointed at Landis's decision, welcomed another go at Bridges, and some Democrats in Congress warned that if the Attorney General failed to act under the Smith Act, the failure would be used against the party. Redness, Hobbs told Assistant Attorney General Alexander Holtzhoff, was the most serious charge the Democratic Party had to confront. And the best way to counter it was for the Attorney General to immediately bring another proceeding to deport Bridges. Senator Richard Russell of Georgia, who engineered the defeat of the Allen Bill in the Senate, joined Hobbs in lobbying justice officials for action. <clears throat> Smith Act trials post-World War II. From 1949 to 1958, 144 CPUSA leaders were tried, resulting in 100 convictions. Among the indicted and or tried, there were CPUSA leaders such as Benjamin Davis, Henry Winston, William C. Foster, and then General Secretary Eugene Dennis, Jill Green, uh, Gus Hall, and many more. It is obvious that the goal of the Smith Act trials was to remove party leadership in order to sow chaos in the communist movement within the United States. Contradiction between Declaration of Independence and the Smith Act. The Smith Act states set out to convict and sentence to five years in prison those with intent to cause the overthrow or destruction of any such government, prints, publishes, edits, issues, circulates, sells, distributes, or publicly displays any written or printed matter advocating, advising, or teaching the duty, necessity, desirability, or propriety of overthrowing or destroying any government in the U.S. by force or violence, or attempts to do so, or organizes or helps or attempts to organize any society, group, or assembly of persons who teach, advocate, or encourage the overthrow or discuss destruction of any such government by force or violence or becomes or is a member of or affiliates with any such society group or assembly of persons knowing the purposes thereof. This contrasts with the Declaration of Independence, which states that, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. The Emergency Detention Act. Criminal criminalization of the Communist Party. Despite Truman's veto, the Emergency Detention Act was passed in 1950, also known as the McCarran Internal Security Act. It was created by Senator Pat McCarran, who supported McCarthy. There were three main components to the act. One was the creation of a subversive, 
Subversive Activities Control Board. Any organization deemed communist would have to register with the Justice Department and submit information on membership, finances, and activities. The act also made it a felony to contribute towards the establishment of a totalitarian dictatorship in the US. In an emergency such as invasion, declaration of war, or insurrection, the president could arrest and detain people who he believed might engage in espionage or sabotage. This section was not in McCarran's original bill. Its authors had hoped to sabotage the bill by making it egregiously tough. Unfortunately, this did not work and the act was passed anyway. The Communist Control Act was added as an amendment to the bill in 1954. It outlawed the CPUSA and criminalized membership and support for the party or communist action organization. The party was deprived of the rights, privileges, and immunities of a legal body. All right, and so we'll go ahead and stop at this part since this section is a little bit longer to go ahead and take some questions and comments. So Comrade General Secretary Angelo from New York, you have the floor. Okay, what everybody has to know, FDR 1940 started this whole thing. It may be a puzzle to people. FDR was the most favorable to our viewpoint of all the presidents before or after. Why would he do this? Well, with this document, where it came from, doesn't mention, unfortunately, is that it happened during World War II and it was geared not up to, to communists. It was geared to the Nazis, the fifth column in this country at the time the German-American Bund. That's what it was geared towards. It was never used against the Nazis, never used against the fifth column. It was used against the communists later on, almost 10 years later, uh, it was used. But it was never used. So when the communists were active in supporting Roosevelt and uh, the mayor of New York City, an Italian mayor, LaGuardia, LaGuardia, who was a fellow traveler, very favorable, very anti-fascist, Mayor LaGuardia. Um, during that whole period, nobody talked about this because it was considered only for the Nazis. And the other thing is that the Smith Act was called the Thought Act. Thought, which means you have to just think of it and you're guilty. That's the really strangeness of the whole act, that if you just think of something, you don't have to put it into practice and you're guilty. Therefore, anybody could be considered guilty of anything. Thank you. All right, thank you, comrade. Yeah, why would a cold warrior like Truman veto this bill? Good question. Well, there, there were points where he said um, that it was overstepping um, the constitution and making a mockery of democracy. Um, you know, he, he recognized that even this act was uh, getting to be pretty harsh. Yeah, and I'll just go ahead and add to that, that it's not out of character uh, for Truman to step up at the worst times when things are the most repressive or the most out there and speak against them. Later in the 1960s, he actually spoke for the abolition of the CIA and to take it only down to the intelligence role. So there's been a few select times when, like a broken clock, Truman's been right. But for the most part, he's been, like you said, a cold warrior. 
Yes. Uh, is it is it are communist organizations still banned under the Control Act? No. I mean, we we have a few communist parties that exist today. Um, you know, I I I think it was all. Um, I think 1954. It was uh, it was um, the bans were being loosened because uh, at this time. Uh, Senator McCarthy, he was going too hard on his uh, allegations. He was even alleging um, the U.S. Army of being a communist organization and uh, and calling for them to release classified documents. This is where his downfall came. Then there was the Army versus Senator McCarthy uh, hearing. So after that, there was starting to be a loosening of it. And I think under Nixon, that's when uh, all of it came to an end. Okay, thanks. Great, thank you, comrade. I'll take these two hands and then we'll go back to the presentation. Uh, yes, uh, one thing, uh, even after uh, the Supreme Court even had uh, knocked down uh, the law, they still had loyalty oaths uh, that people had assigned. Angelo would back me up on that. Teachers still had to sign loyalty oaths, even when he came into the school, even though he, he you know, he laughed at it. But technically, you had to put your name down on it. And I had to sign a loyalty oath in 1979 when I was hired by the state. And I was, and at that time, I was involved for a few years before that in radical activities uh, in uh, in certain political parties, the radical parties. So uh, I was just saying, well, I'll sign it and. Uh, I doubt if the states could have investigated it. I think it was a federal job. I'm sure they would have maybe investigated it. But uh, I signed it, uh, and uh, it pretty well ignored it. They didn't want me to sign this. I'll sign this. Fine. You're going to hire me, and that's it. But uh, Angelo would probably back, back me up, the general secretary, that he probably had to sign the same thing when he became a teacher. Yeah, if I could uh, chime in. Can I? Yeah, the floor. Yeah, it was called the Feinberg. Feinberg Law in New York City, that no teacher who was a member of the Communist Party can teach. It was called the Feinberg. And that was declared unconstitutional um, actually by, by 68 or 69. It became it declared unconstitutional. But um, I want to tell everybody here that when I was in second grade, my teacher, Ethel Levine, who one day I went into school, was gone. She was a member of the party and she was fired. Okay, and my second grade teacher. And you know, when you're a child, uh, a, a woman teacher is very important to you. They're, they're like a mother in the classroom, actually. And we were devastated. We didn't know why our teacher was taking from her. But uh, I suggest that everybody get a hold of a book by J. Edgar Hoover, if you heard that name. He was the head of the FBI, J. Edgar Hoover, H-O-O-V-E-R. And he wrote a book called Masters of Deceit. That means lying. And he presented a picture that the communists were involved with everything. The churches, the PTA, Parent Teachers Association, everything. And that's when I began to realize that they're involved with the peace movement. They're in control of the people. They must be doing something good. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. 
I was just going to say basically. So his his downfall. McCarthy was a Republican, and he accused a lot of liberals, Democrats, um, like the progressive side of them, because you know they had the whole Southern Democrats. But he accused all like all the uh, he accused lots of liberals, actors in Hollywood um, of being communists and stuff, and it it ended up uh, he lost favor with everybody, and he actually. Uh, a lot of people don't know he actually died like a year or two after he uh, got like lost his position from alcoholism. Uh, he was an alcoholic during that whole period of time. Um, and there's a lot of there's a lot. I've read I've read a lot about McCarthy. It's, it's really interesting because he legitimately believed all this stuff he was saying. He it's, it legit seemed like he really believed communists were in every aspect of Hollywood, and there were communists in Hollywood. Um, or fellow travelers at least but um a lot of the people he read baited weren't even read at all so and uh, prominent people he even uh, he, he called fdr communists all right thank you comrade and and yeah i'll just you know add to that real quick and say that there was a film i don't remember what it was it was featured in one of the documentaries i watched about the time um, that made fun of McCarthy because kind of like the other anti-communists that wrote the the Black Book of Communism and the whole victims of communism thing, he always had a changing number of how many communists were in the State Department. It would be like 100, 200. Then, you know, he, he didn't have a, a steady thing. So he was just going to try to get as many communists out of the State Department and out of the government as possible. He was the, you know, main person spearheading that anti-communist push so thank you comrade yeah i just wanted to point something out um in regards to harry bridges so as you know harry bridges is the namesake for our cell here in california doing some reading on him it was interesting to find out a lot of things you know he was a lifelong ilwu member um he's australian born you know and then he became an american citizen after but it's ironic. I don't know who said this, What? Uh, who the quote was from, but when they're living, they'll throw dirt on their name. And then when they're dead, they'll act like they always supported their ideas and things like this. Like right on the corner of Market and Embarcadero Street in San Francisco is the Harry Bridges Plaza. You know, and this is in the same city that the FBI consistently harassed him through his dirt, you know, name, uh, dirt on his name and all these kinds of things. And it's it's just quite ironic to me. Because now the Harry Bridges Plaza is used for like a lot of, uh, it's a starting point for a lot of rallies that take place in San Francisco. The CPUSA used to march there for Labor Day and everything, drawing in tens of thousands of people. And now it's just, you know, nothing really, but that's all. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, as everyone knows, I have to mention openly where were all the cries of uh, limited speech and they're taking your freedoms back then when literally just thinking about communism could mean a guilty sign. Again, I just want to simply point that out. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. I definitely agree. Yeah, um, looking at over all this stuff, it's everything is just a huge carryover of anti-communism, especially with current labor laws that have been initiated since 1955. Um, I just work with people that are trying to become citizens and seeing so much of the anti-communist rhetoric that's been written into the immigration system. It's really disheartening at times, even though I know that these are people looking to 
find some kind of relief from where they came but just at the same time i'm just like the anti-communist rhetoric is everywhere and it's baked in early and quick thank you Great. Thank you, comrade. And I just want to let comrades know as well that the Smith Act, while it wasn't like the entire law uh, wasn't overturned, a, a lot of the convictions under the act were reversed later as being unconstitutional. So there are still some vestiges of it to this day. Um, but, you know, the overall law itself has been pretty uh, dismantled since then. I just wanted to give that just in case any comrades were wondering. Um, yeah, I know at the beginning we talked about a law that Truman signed enabling screenings for the various ideologies, and one of them was fascism, and I was wondering how that affected American immigrants and politicians who were supportive of the Pinochet dictatorship, and if it was ever used then, or if they just uh yeah so the i mean the scope of this um class was until um early 60s so i didn't actually uh investigate too far into it pinochet came to power in 1973 so um unfortunately that wasn't on my uh purview all right thank you comrade um yeah I'm just curious to know there was 144 convictions at this time for the communist party what was the membership of the total communist party does anybody know at this time what i was looking at was um it was uh claimed that there were between 50,000 and 60,000 uh, people in the CPUSA and then and as far as um membership in the mass orgs goes especially in the um the international working man's order um iwo there were another like um 100,000 people i believe so um and then after all of this um the cp after um at one point after eugene dennis's um trial uh they went underground and from there the party numbers dropped to about 10,000 all right, thank you, comrade. And comrade General Secretary Angelo from New York, you have the floor. Yeah, in 1970, the party membership went up to 25,000 again. We were on, we were recuperating. Uh, so things were on the up. It took years. During the new left, 60s, the party was not around. So the only message that young people got was from the new left. That was deliberate. It was anti-Soviet message. When the party came up in 70s, started to um, go on, on top of the ground again. And um, we grew by the time in Staten Island, we had a club. With normally the club, there was three or four people in our club in Staten Island. We got up to 25 in 1982. We had 25 because we were working against the home port, the nuclear port. The club took the leadership. And so people saw we were doing something and they came to us. So the whole party and then the International Workers' Order, that was the name of the group, International Workers' Order, by W.O., was almost 180,000. Uh, so Gus used to tell me, you take a pebble, you throw a pebble in a lake, the pebble falls at a certain spot, but there are ripples 
there were ripples. Those ripples go way beyond where the pebble felt. And so the party had ripple effects. There were a lot, a lot of fellow travelers in the party, even in this, in the, even up until 85. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. So we'll go ahead and, and finish out that section, have a brief question period, and then go into the second one. Uh, this is just a poster by the uh, Delaware Valley Committee, and it was uh, made in 1961. It just it describes a couple of things that the uh, McCarran Act does. You can see there is a section at the very top that says, remember the Nazis, they started with outlawing communists, then trade unions, church groups, and ended with wholesale persecution. Um, it describes that the McCarran Act required registration for organizations affiliated with communism, labeling all mailed material as communists and prohibited travel by withholding passports from members of certain organizations. In addition, these laws violated the First Amendment right of association. Any group or trade union can be deemed communist infiltrated and thus is required to register. The act also threatened detention in concentration camps if the president declared an emergency and failure to comply led to a fine of $10,000 and five years in jail per day of noncompliance. Um, I believe there were at least 24 parties that uh, were required to register under this act, but none of them ever did. Civil rights movement, movement for racial equality. The civil rights movement was the struggle to abolish racial segregation and protest inequality. Key figures included Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, Roy Wilkins, and A. Philip Randolph. These protests were largely nonviolent and involved sit-ins, bus boycotts, voter registration organizations, and public school integrations. In 1954, protests against segregation of schools led to the case of Brown versus Board of Education, the court ruled unanimously that permitting schools to be segregated by race was unconstitutional. One factor in this decision was in the preserving of the U.S.'s image during the Cold War. Secretary of State Dean Aikson was quoted saying, the United States is under constant attack in the foreign press, over the foreign radio, and in such international bodies as the United Nations because of various practices of discrimination in this country. In 1955, Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat to a white passenger on a public bus in Montgomery, Alabama, in an act of civil disobedience. She was arrested and soon after, the Montgomery bus boycott was organized to demand a bus system that would treat all passengers equally. In 1965, the Supreme Court ordered Montgomery's buses to be desegregated in the case of Broder versus Gale, ending the boycott. In 1963, A. Philip Randolph organized the March on Washington. A quarter of a million people marched to the Lincoln Memorial to show support for the Civil Rights Bill. In 1964, President Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act, which prohibited discrimination in public places, integrated schools and other public facilities, and outlawed employment discrimination. This was the most sweeping civil rights legislation since the Reconstruction. Um, one thing I just wanted to add real quickly was the reason why we brought up the civil rights movement and that, you know, it, it, it might not seem connected to imperialism, but it was because a lot of the forces at the time that were pushing against a lot of the, you know, uh, leg legislation, you know, enshrining and protecting civil rights 
were the forces that were also uh, trying to push against communism and the Soviet Union. And, you know, the socialist experiment in the Soviet Union showed more equality and a better uh, condition of living for people. And people in the United States saw that, and that even influenced a lot of the civil rights leaders. And so the imperialists, um, on one hand, you know, were opposed to this because of how it, you know, was kind of linked to the Cold War and the image of the Soviet Union. Um, but as, as it was shown on the other hand, they also went ahead and gave some of these reforms to save face in, you know, in the era of the Cold War and go, oh, look at the United States. We're improving on this uh, social issue. So obviously this other person is, is worse. And you see this nowadays when, you know, I, I, the United States does have some things like LGBT plus legislation or it, other civil rights legislation that's better than some other countries. And we use that to go, oh, look at the United States, we're better on this human rights issue. Um, but really it's just to go ahead and further the imperialist cause. And that doesn't mean that the civil rights movements that have happened were bad or that you know improving civil rights for these communities are bad. It just means that it happened in the United States and the imperialists are taking advantage of it to make the US image look better. But we'll go ahead and take the hands that are up. So this has been mentioned in previous meetings recently, but I think it's worth restating how the Soviet Union really was pushing for peace. And it was the um, American establishment, at least under Truman, that was really going against their peace efforts. And I think that's worth mentioning um, as America is getting ready for war, that there was um, Stalin was trying to actively, you know, negotiate with peace. And uh, once they uh had their first uh, bomb dropping, atomic bomb dropping in 1949. I think it really pushed the American, I would say, military um, industrial uh, like complex to actually try to push this whole narrative of communists being, you know, dangerous and and um, you know, foreign agents and whatnot. Um, but that's what I'd like to mention. Thank you, comrade. And yeah, I'll just echo that and say that, you know, it's similar FDR meeting with Stalin and actually making the agreements to go forward towards peaceful coexistence after the war kind of reminds me of how when Putin first came into power in the Russian Federation, um, he was meeting with U.S. presidents Clinton and Bush um, to try to foster a more peaceful coexistence and a better relationship with the United States. And of course, that soured off in 2003 with the invasion of Iraq. And, uh, and and that was largely the United States' decision to end that kind of relationship. And that's pushed things to the brink of where they are today in a sort of second Cold War. So thank you for that, comrade. Uh, yeah, two things. It wasn't really mentioned, but it's not that big of a deal. A lot of people, like it's a legend that uh, Rosa Parks was tired and she didn't stand up uh, when she didn't give up her bus seat. But it was actually an action that she and some other people have been planning for months uh, leading up to when she refused to give up her bus seat. Just a fun fact. And also, um, the civil rights movement is important because a lot of the black Americans uh, and black communist Americans uh, had solidarity with the communists in Africa who we were, you know, um, oppressing at the time. That's been a long going relationship in the city. I know Malcolm X and other people that were, you know, leaning communists spoke uh, on several of these se about the situation in Africa a lot 
and the Soviet Union, you know, helped a lot in Africa, too. So it, it's all connected to imperialism. Uh, Comrade General Secretary, you have the floor. Yeah, I want to put things in, uh, in perspective. While we were being attacked, the communists were being attacked, and our rights were taken away, we were also involved in the rights and struggles of other people. So we were involved with the war against Korea. The first demonstrations that happened in Korea were led by communists and together with pacifists. The civil rights movement, you should know, was a field of struggle against communists. Roy Wilkins was the leader of a civil rights organization that forbade communists for being members of it. That's Roy Wilkins. I think it was the NAACP. That's the name of the group. Uh, the other one that you mentioned um, with the March on Washington was a social democrat. A. Philip Randolph was anti-communist. It was a red beta and spoke in the House of American Activities Committee. These people are no, in my opinion, heroes. They used an issue dialectically that was a positive issue, civil rights for African-Americans. But they denied Black, African-Americans, and white who were communists the, the right to be part of their organizations. So we had to form our own groups. And the Civil Rights Congress was one of them. So going back to the 30s, the fight for the Scottsboro Boys was done by the communists. Um, they then got a lawyer, the anti-communist African-American community got a lawyer to, to represent the Scottsboro Boys instead of our people. So there was a direct campaign. You should understand that. Roy Wilkins, in my book, is a no-no. And A. Philip Randolph is a no-no. They also have friends in the trade union movement, in the teachers union, which I'm a member of. They have a group called the A. Philip Randolph Institute, which was involved with destroying socialism in Poland and giving money to the fascists in the Ukraine. The A. Philip Randolph Institute, you should Google it. It's still around. And the CIA is working with them. So don't get misguided that because a person is doing good work in one area, they're necessarily good. That's all. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yeah, I wanted to touch on something since we're talking about it. The issue being the difference of the federal prison system and the state prison system. If you are convicted in a state prison, you can get off with good behavior. You can get your time shortened. You may be pardoned by the governor of your respective state. But if you are given a federal sentence, you will serve every single day of that sentence. If they say 15 years, you will be in the can for 15 years. So I want people to be aware of this because we see kind of a similar rise of things like this happening in, in the country now in regards to, you know, the, the attacks on the African People's Socialist Party and things like this. So I just want people to be aware that the federal system is the worst thing that any of us can be involved in. And for this reason, you know, we must be extremely cautious and vigilant in our work, but then at the same time, too, do not have naivete to think that they won't throw people in there just the same. That's all. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yes. Uh, did any organization ever, like, actually register under the McCarran Act? Not it never happened. No, the answer is it never happened. Uh, let me tell you what that would have meant. That would have meant that if you're a member of a peace group and you got something in the mail, the U.S. mail, on the stamp, they would have to have on that letter, on the outside, that this is a subversive organization. Now, the mailman delivers it to you. What do you think he's going to be thinking? 
that you're some kind of a terrorist or something. If you're a subvert, you're getting mail from a subversive group. It actually said that on the envelope that they were sent through the U.S. mail. So people dropped out left and right. They were afraid of, of being tagged as, as communists and have their neighbors oppose them, etc. So it was a form of fear. That's all. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. What was the CP's policy at this time on speaking of a violent revolution? Were they openly advocating for it or did they feel that organizing work had to be done before it? That's my main question. Thank you. If I could speak on that, the position was straight that we're not calling for a revolution and we weren't at the time. And therefore, it's a misnomer. They didn't even mention that Lincoln and the early republic talked about the rights of people to have a revolution. They didn't even go into that. What they did is they used the first 10 amendments of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. And that's what they used. They used the bourgeois Constitution to defend themselves because that's why we had the Bill of Rights for that reason. And so they used it. Remember, number one, one of them is that you cannot incriminate yourself. That's one of the uh, amendments to the Bill of Rights. And so they use that. The lawyers or the party lawyers use that. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. We'll go ahead and jump to the next section. And I think for time, we'll just go ahead and combine it so that we can have uh, some questions and comments before the end. And we don't have any new members tonight, so we can skip the new members introduction when we come to it as well. So Germany, post-World War II. This is after the defeat of Hitler, comrades, at the end of the Second World War. In July of 1945, the Potsdam Conference was held. This was a conference between the Soviet Union, the USA, Britain, and France, the major allied powers. Um, this conference was on what to do with Germany, how to implement denazification, and how to begin basically the reconstruction of Europe as a whole, since Europe was devastated after six years of, of fighting from 1939 to 1945. So Germany itself, as a result of this treaty, um, which was not a final settlement on Germany, but was a temporary treaty, was divided into four zones, one Soviet, one American, one British, and one French. The capital city of Berlin itself, within the Soviet zone, which is in the red over there, was also divided into a British, French, Soviet, and American sectors. Um, a final peace treaty was going to be reached in the future, but this was a temporary treaty of military occupation and the denazification of Germany. A final treaty was later reached in 1991 and with German reunification. Um, Germany post-1945 was to be controlled and ran. All supreme power was to be run through an Allied Control Council. This was a board that was set up as a result of the Potsdam Conference. This board had all major powers on it, the Soviet Union, USA, France, and Britain, and would oversee the governance of Germany. Um, in the immediate years after the Second World War, so in 1947, the Allies begin making works on trying to create a new currency, a new German currency. The Soviet Union did not agree to this, but the Allies pushed ahead with the creation of a new German currency called the German mark within their zones of occupation. So this is the first steps, because like everything, comrades, the political structure is based on economics. So the British 
Americans and the French all agreed to create a German currency while the Soviets did not. So after it was revealed that the Allies were going to do this, um, the Soviets outvoted and basically facing, you know, a no-win situation by going through the Allied Control Council, since the Allies were making their own decisions regardless of the Soviets, decided to leave the Allied Control Council. This led to the split of West and East Germany and the formation of West Germany and the German Democratic Republic. Next slide. So going back um, in terms of the atomic bomb, in August of 1945, after months of genocidal incendiary bombings of Japanese cities, which were not military targets, um, the United States dropped two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki and abandoned the agreed joint invasion plan of Japan that FDR created with the Soviet Union. The Soviet invasion of Manchuria came the same day as the bombing of Nagasaki, August 9th, 1945. The Japanese already were looking for, for a surrender because of the threat of the Soviet invasion. The Japanese surrendered to the Americans on September 2nd, 1945. The United States used the atomic bombings as a pretext for winning the war. And this was also to snub the Soviets of their tremendous campaign in Manchuria, which I encourage all comrades to research um, the Soviet liberation of Manchuria. It's a fascinating campaign over a uh, over an area of land that is larger than almost the Midwest. So imagine the entire Midwest goes from the control of one power to another within a matter of weeks. That's how quickly the Soviets liberated Manchuria. The US intentionally kept the Soviet Union out of atom bomb research. So the US decided to keep this technology and this weaponry for themselves. Um, however, the British were included in atomic research as they helped develop the atomic bomb alongside the United States. And Japan was occupied by the United States exclusively, along with South Korea at the 48th parallel was also occupied by the United States, dividing the Korean nation. This was on purpose, comrades, to create division between the Korean people and to also occupy Japan and prevent it from becoming an anti-imperialist country, which was a possibility. The main resistance to imperial Japan and fascist Japan were the communists, the Japanese communists, socialists, and trade unionists, who were also likewise later banned in American-occupied Japan. Next slide. Back to Germany, a tale of two Germanys. So we're gonna look first look at the GDR and its state foundations. The Soviet occupation zone in Eastern Germany which would later become the German Democratic Republic, oversaw very different reconstruction than the West. First of all, the East historically of Germany has always been an agricultural region. It had far less industry and landmass and population compared to West Germany. So a one-to-one -one comparison of these states is inaccurate and presumptuous. However, unlike West Germany, the denazification of East Germany was enforced vigorously. Um, the Nazi party was banned. The newspaper was banned. Head officials and even medium level officials were banned. So the East Germans had to create an entire new state bureaucracy clean of Nazis. In the East, there was land reform. The big Junker estates, which were a relic of feudalism with big landlords were broken up. And there was land reform with German farmers and peasants receiving land compensation and you know, creating a new economic life in the countryside. 
the monopolies which brought Hitler to power and brought the Nazis to power and funded the Second World War and sustained the Nazi rule over Europe were likewise broken up and expropriated by East Germany. And the German Democratic Republic, multiple political parties were legalized and allowed to participate in elections and the rebuilding of a democratic anti-fascist people's Germany. This included the Christian Democrats, the, the Communist Party, the Social Democrats, and also various patriotic parties that were anti-fascist. New unions were created and united into the Free German Greater Union, which was a trade union organization that united German Social Democrats and Communists. The goal during this period of the 40s after Nazism amongst German Communists was unity, uniting all of the people under an anti-fascist banner and for the reconstruction of their country. Um, this likewise happened with the Free German Youth Organization, which was made up of people who, from either communist youth organizations, Christian Democrats, Social Democrats, and even, even reformed Hitler youth who were brainwashed and as a result of the war lost everything, were aided and helped by the Free German Youth to you know, change their belief system and to rebuild their country. This stands completely in contrast with West Germany. And the German Democratic Republic was founded on these strong anti-fascist traditions. Next slide. Now compare this to the Federal Republic of Germany, or otherwise known as West Germany. West Germany, unlike East Germany, started with many economic advantages. It was larger, had a greater population, and encompassed the most industrialized and undamaged portions of Germany. Um, it's interesting to note that the Allies, even during World War II, made great effort to not damage or cripple German industry, especially within the Western Ruhr region and the Rhineland. Um, some of the major industrialists' factories were entirely spared and unharmed from the bombing, whereas instead of bombing you know, Nazi factories, which were producing large amounts of material and equipment, and of course profits, you know, American and British bombers instead attacked big cities and civilian centers. This was very much like the campaign over Japan during World War II with strategic bombing, which targeted many civilian areas. Unlike the East, West Germany never denazified. Many members of the Schutzstaffel or the SS, known as the, also known as the Gestapo, the people who carried out the Holocaust, ran the German Nazi intelligence agencies, the brown shirts, who were the Sturmabteilung, the street fighting men who brought you know, Hitler into power through street terror, and members of the Nazi party held on to their posts within the German economy, civil service, courts, government, and military. In fact, the leader of the West German military comrades when it was reestablished was named Hans Spiedel. He was a member of the Nazi party. These are facts. Even uh, Konrad Adenauer served in state service during the Nazi regime. So the West German government was infested by Nazis and it kept the same civil service. Most controversially, the West German, and even today, you can look this up comrades, the modern German intelligence agency, the BND, was founded by the Nazi Reinhard Galen, who ran German military intelligence during World War II. The same Reinhard Galen also helped Stefan Bandera and various Ukrainian fascists escaped to West Germany after World War II. West Germany, much like it, their Nazi predecessors, banned the German Communist Party, and they also banned the Free German Youth. 
And throughout the entire Cold War, the ruling parties of West Germany either swapped between the conservative Christian Democratic Union and the anti-communist Social Democrat SPD, Social Democrats. And there's a difference, comrades, between anti-fascist Social Democrats who seek a united front with communists versus anti-communist Social Democrats who do not seek a united front. Imperialists and fascists manufactured the Iron Curtain. While used sparingly by Western authors as far back as 1920, the main usage of the term began in Germany with three recorded uses of the term, including in 1945, when Joseph Goebbels himself said, an iron curtain would fall over this enormous territory controlled by the Soviet Union behind which nations would be slaughtered. In March of 1946, at a speech ironically entitled Sinews of Peace, at the Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri, Winston Churchill used the term to refer to the western borders of the new eastern bloc, saying, from Seton in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic, an iron curtain has descended across the continent. Behind that line lie all the capitals of the ancient states of Central and Eastern Europe. Warsaw, Berlin, Prague, Vienna, Budapest, Belgrade, Bucharest, and Sofia. All these famous cities and the populations around them lie in what I must call the Soviet sphere, and all are subject in one form or another, not only to Soviet influence, but also to a very high and in some cases increasing measure of control for Moscow. First Greek Civil War, first post-World War II U.S. intervention. In October 1944, during the secret Tolstoy meeting between Churchill and Stalin, a percentages agreement was signed which outlined the percentages of responsibility over different Eastern European nations after World War II. Britain got 90% of the responsibility over Greece in return for Soviet responsibility throughout most of Eastern Europe. In March of 1946, the Greek Civil War began as the communists in Greece went to war with the Western-backed Kingdom of Greece. The UK backed the monarchy government as with the United States by 1947, while the communists, including the Greek Communist Party, KKE, and the National Liberation Front, EAM, were supported overtly by Yugoslavia and Albania, and covertly with Nazi stockpiles of weapons by the USSR. During this conflict, the United States and allies used tactics later seen in the Vietnam War, including deportations of civilians to camps, separation of women and children, napalm bombing, bombing villages, and supporting a brutal monarchist government which the people despised. Truman Doctrine and Greece, extending the Monroe Doctrine everywhere. On March 12, 1947, Truman gave a speech to the Congress of the United States recommending assistance to Greece and Turkey, the latter of which was pressured by the Soviet Union to allow Soviet ships through the Turkish Strait. The policy called for the United States to support free peoples who are resisting attempted subjugation by armed minorities or by outside pressures. This was in effect spreading the Monroe Doctrine of intervening in the Americas to halt European colonialism or later to further imperialist interests to the rest of the world to spread peace and democracy and stop totalitarianism abroad. It has governed US foreign policy to this day. The Greek Civil War ended in 1949 with a Western-backed nationalist victory, which the Western imperialists celebrated. This victory gave them hubris about their capability of winning 
any perceived proxy conflict with the USSR. Meanwhile, the Soviets and Yugoslavs split over the war as Yugoslavia refused Soviet pleas to not support the Greek communists whom the Soviets wanted to work with the nationalist government and not upset the percentages agreement made with Britain. All right, thank you, comrade. I wanted to just add a couple of things real quickly that didn't get uh, brought up in the class. The first is actually a very interesting fact about, I believe, the first Secretary of Defense or Defense uh, Manager of the United States, James Forrestal. If you've ever heard that name, if you haven't, you should write it down because he actually committed suicide while he was in office over our equipping of uh, Nazis in Ukraine. Uh, because basically he had got to a point where he was so schizophrenic about propping up these Nazis and about what we were doing overseas that he basically got put in an insane asylum or a mental hospital and spent a whole night writing from an ancient Greek book. I forget which one it was, but he gets to this word Nightingale, which is the name of this uh, battalion that we went ahead and set up in Ukraine. He stopped at that word turned around and jumped out the window. At least that's how the story goes. There's some sort of um, uncertainty about whether he was pushed or not, but it was a it was a big happening that, that connected with imperialism at that time. I believe it was like 1946 or 47 that it happened. So you should search up James Forrestal. Uh, another thing real quick is that uh, the situations in Cuba and Vietnam, you know, even though we're gonna talk about them in the next history of US imperialism class, there were still preparations for those conflicts going on in the 1950s. The United States, of course, militarily supported the uh, government of Fulgencio Batista in Cuba. Uh, we still, I mean, we've had the basic Guantanamo ever since the 1900s when we did, when we helped out with the Spanish-American War. And we were also preparing to uh, intervene militarily in Vietnam uh, after 19. Uh, 54, when the French were defeated at DNB and Phu, uh, we basically, in the Geneva uh, Convention after that, uh, voted against any kind of like peaceful resolution to the conflict and basically prepared to continue that war. Uh, technically, the Vietnam War lasts from like 1955 to 1975. We really didn't start getting heavily involved until the early 60s. So I just wanted to add that in there and keep in mind all the classes that we've gone through before this, most of those places that we had occupations and we had interventions, we still had troops at and we were still involved in. So Latin America, Europe, Asia, et cetera, it all grows from here. Um, but I'll go ahead and go to the next hand. Yeah, it's incredible what was going on. And in the 1940s, you know, that's when all the the Popular Front, United Front, all the those forces that had just won World War II in Italy, in France, in Britain. The Nazis were used to destroy those coalitions, and then the communists were all kicked out. And in our country, too, this is when, in 1947, 33% of the population was unionized. 33%. That's one in three. Now it, it's it's not even like... It's like six or seven percent or something. And the the Cold War was like won by the United States in the 1940s. The Soviet Union, unfortunately, couldn't keep up. And it's just crazy because the United States would say something like, NATO will not expand. And then, you know, they shake Gorbachev's hand. And Gorbachev just smiled and said, 
NATO were an Atlantics fan. And it's just uh, it's just incredible how it panned out. That's what's different now. Now, unfortunately, there's no more Soviet Union, but now people are actually serious about doing something. All right. Thank you, comrade. And I think you meant that the uh, Soviets lost the Cold War in the 90s because you said the 40s. Oh, yeah. Well, no, what I was saying is the United States won the Cold War already in the 40s. If you look at what was going on around the world and the Soviet Union, what are they doing 40 years later, shaking the hand of the United States like it was nothing? Uh, and the Soviet Union was more than it was destroyed. It was defeated. It was defeated, comrades. It was a, this was a war. They were defeated. Russians were humiliated. Uh, that's why the whole there's a conflagration in all those countries, all these conflicts it's made up nationalism. They were destroyed. 90 seconds. All right. Thank you for the clarification, comrade. Uh, yeah. So I, I brought this up on Tuesday. Um, since there's some newer people today, I wanted to bring it up again. But um, yeah, it wasn't mentioned in this class, and hopefully in another class on uh, U.S. imperialism in the future, we'll go on to specifically in uh, South America. It's kind of the the continuation of the Monroe Doctrine. Um, but basically depriving, you know, whereas the Monroe Doctrine was the U.S. stating it would uh, keep European colonialism out. Now it's basically uh, the U.S. is keeping its colonialism in in South America. But I wanted to bring up uh, an organization that was formerly known as the School of Americas. Um, it's now... I forget when it changed, I think it was in the 90s, uh, to this uh, organization called the Western Hemisphere Institute of Security Cooperation, um, abbreviated WINSEC. Uh, but basically, this is an organization where the U.S. Army takes in fascist leaders from South America, trains them on American army bases in the American soil, and sends them back to the to South America to act as uh, death squads against communists and 90 seconds. Other, other opposition groups. Um, some of these uh, groups that they uh, supported was um, Pinochet's regime, you know, the people who were dropping communists out of helicopters. There were thousands of them that were killed that way. They put in Manuel Noriega of Panama, and a whole lot of other uh, instances. It's uh, something people need to read about. Thank you, comrade. I'll also add, because I said it on Tuesday too, there was the El Mazote massacre done by the El Salvadoran army. They were also trained by uh, the School of the Americas. Yeah, uh, real quick on point, there's a good documentary called The War on Democracy. Um, I don't remember who's the director of it, but it's it's really good. It touches on U.S. imperialism in Latin America. And there's even a scene where they talk with Chavez from 2007 or the war on democracy. Thank you for that, comrade. Yeah. Hey, I didn't catch that last line on the last slide. Could someone clarify the nature of the split between uh, Yugoslavia and Soviet Union? Let's look at the thing in context. An agreement was made at Yalta to divide Europe into spheres of influence. For the first time, Eastern European countries, Sofia, Bucharest in Romania, Sofia in Bulgaria, um, Prague in Czechoslovakia, 
for the first time, all these countries were allowed to be under influence of non-Western imperialism. All these countries, the communist parties, were able to consolidate because the Red Army was protecting them. They didn't have that before. So they were able to consolidate. All of a sudden, interestingly enough, one section of Europe decided to go individual, basically said, we don't care what you agreed upon. We're going to have our own struggle here. And that was in Greece. That's exactly what happened in Greece. The Greek Communist Party disobeyed what Comrade Stalin, very clear that you understand this, had agreed to. In my opinion, it was the first time that the Greeks showed their true colors. In my opinion, it was the first time. Now they went against the whole international communist movement and they did their own thing. Yugoslavia, which borders Greece, the partisan movement led by the Communist Party and Comrade Tito, who was, by the way, not a Serbian, but a Croat. You should know that. Uh, that's a section of Yugoslavia. The little PS, the Nazis, had influence in Croatia, the Croats nation of Croatia. But we were lucky to get Comrade Tito. So he led the partisan movement. There was then a period, again, where the good of the whole, the good of the collective was to do one thing. And at that time, the Yugoslav party decided the hell with what the international communist movement is doing. We're going to do our own thing. That's the way I see it. It was individualism in both cases that disrupted that whole thing. I don't know if I answered your question, comrade. All right. Now, just add to that real quick and say that, you know, I think it's kind of similar to the situation in China following World War II, where Stalin had told, you know, Mao and the Chinese communists try to work with uh, the, you know, the nationalist Kuomintang uh, government and see where it gets you. And they did. And they saw, well, this avenue isn't going to work. This is going to have to be an armed struggle. And they had that um, revolution. But instead, in Greece, what the Greek communists did and what the uh, Yugoslav and Albanian communists supported was basically just saying, like Comrade General Secretary said, uh, to hell with what, uh, you know, the Soviet Union is saying and what the international communist movement is saying. Let's just start now. Let's just go straight against this um, this this monarchist government. And for sure, if they tried to work with the monarchist government, I don't think it would have been successful. And I think there still would have been an armed struggle, but it wouldn't have been that kind of uh, breaking, uh, I don't know if you'd call it democratic centralism or at least, you know, solidarity with the international communist movement and what they had said. So I uh, hope that answered the comrade's question. Yeah, uh, why was uh, the... Uh creation of the the mark a uh, uh, new mark in the western zones uh, why was that violation of the Potsdam agreement yes it was <laughs> yes it was they created a a monetary german mark separate from the mark in the east so you're correct it was the west that divided germany economically so now you had a situation 
with, with open borders. You had people living in Eastern Berlin and in Dresden and in Leipzig, all the Eastern cities, can go across and um, the people in the West can go across to the East. Everything in the East was subsidized. Remember that. The bread was subsidized. The, the uh, food, the housing, everything was subsidized. Television uh, sets that were made. The Westerns went into the East, got everything cheap, and then went back to the West. Meanwhile, when you subsidize, where does the money come from? The collective socialized state. That's what happens on the subsidization. So you see, they were draining the East of uh, material goods. So that's why the border was set up in 61, finally, to stop the drain. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Thank you, comrade. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to add to Yugoslavia real quick. At this period, when uh, Tito was going away from internationalism, uh, Hoja actually did not. Um, Hoja was against Tito because t uh, Yugoslavia actually tried to annex Albania and make it into a one of the federated states of Yugoslavia. Hoja writes about this uh, in the Tito Whites. It's a book. I recommend checking it out. He didn't really say screw the Soviet Union until like uh, 60s. It was after he was a big Stalinist. That's the whole thing. He was always stuck with Stalin. But um, yeah, a lot of people forget that um, that you know Al Albania had a struggle for their they had a struggle against you know social whatever you want to call Yugoslavia um, at the time. But yeah, All right. And I'll just say you know before we go to the last uh, section, another thing that the split between uh, Yugoslavia and the Soviet Union did was it gave the first socialist state that was kind of operating independently of the Soviet Union and the international communist movement. And it made, you know, that that collective block weaker because now the United States saw that it could come in and exploit that that split. And of course, uh, who did the Yugoslavs turn to for help after that split? They turned to the United States and they actually got a lot of U.S. aid after that. So it just goes to show you exactly uh, where Tito was at that time. And of course, as Comrade General Secretary said, during World War II, he played a progressive role, but after broke from the communist movement and started um, going on his own path. But we have the last section, which is a brief section on the uh, Korean War and some of the other interventions that were going on at that time. The Cold War the first Pacific Cold War conflict. At the end of World War II, Soviet forces occupied the northern part of the Korean Peninsula and the Americans occupied the south at the 48th parallel. In 1948, Soviet forces withdrew from the peninsula and in 1949, American forces withdrew as well. The socialist Soviet-backed and China-backed Democratic People's Republic of Korea and fascist Western-backed Republic of Korea were born. In June 25, 1950, the DPRK invaded the Republic of Korea, South Korea, whom were also allegedly planning to invade the North with Western support on the same day. And I can say with good faith that probably would have happened. The Fatherland Liberation War, as the Koreans called it, or the Korean War, as it is known in the U.S., began. 
the Korean People's Army quickly conquered most of the peninsula. Western-backed fascist dictator Syngman Rhee fleed the capital of Seoul, ordering the bombing of a bridge with 4,000 refugees on it and ordered the massacre of up to hundreds of suspected communists in the Bodo League massacre. American-led United Nations invasion of Korea. In July of 1950, the United States began fighting the KPA forces directly in South Korea. From July to September, the KPA held the United States at the Pusan line. But from September 16th on, the U.S. forces broke through and began pushing towards the north, capturing Seoul uh, on September 25th. On September 26th, the U.N. and the UN, led by the United States, officially began an invasion of North Korea. By the end of October, UN forces reached the Sino-Korean border, or Chinese-Korean border. The United States Air Force carried out its first bombing raids since detaching from the Army. Um, you know, in World War II, the, if you don't know, the, uh, the people in the fighter uh, planes were in the Army. There wasn't an Air Force yet. Um, well, there was, but it was part of the army. Um, destroyed 85% of North Korean buildings, dropped 635,000 tons of bombs, including 32,557 tons of napalm, and were responsible for 282,000 Korean deaths, which was 12% of their population. More or less, it could be, it probably way higher than that. Um, with Western forces on the border, who were just threatening to fight them over Taiwan at the end of the third Chinese civil war, the Chinese intervened in the war and pushed the United Nations forces back to the 38th parallel. Fighting continued near the 38th parallel for about three years. Not only was this the only time U.S. forces engaged in major military conflict with the People's Liberation Army of China, but was also one of the first times one of the only times U.S. forces directly engaged Soviet forces as a skirmish occurred between fighter jets during this time. After a stalemate and multiple nuclear bluffs by Truman and newly elected President Dwight D. Eisenhower, an armistice was signed, but the war was never officially ended to this day. A demilitarized zone separating the two countries was established, and both nations still exist to this day. But there's only one true Korea, and the other is a military base. China. In 1945 through 1946, the U.S. military supported the Kuomintang against the Chinese communists. Later, the CIA began their Tibetan program, setting up the Tibetan counter-revolutionaries with, um, you know, support from the Dalai Lama. Syria. In 1949, the CIA supported a coup by the Syrian army against the president, Kuali, who was seen as weak following Syria's defeat in the 47-48 Israel-Arab War to prevent the Syrian CP from gaining power. And Ukraine, uh, when it was the Ukrainian Socialist Soviet Republic. Following the Marshall Plan, the CIA facilitated a reaction, a reactivation of the fascist Ukrainian insurgent army, codenamed Nightingale, like the Nactigal name they had when working with the Nazis. They carried out murders of thousands of Jews, Russians, and Poles, 
1949, the CIA parachuted Ukrainian Nazis back into the region, and this continued for five years. I believe it continued until actually Khrushchev got into power. Iran. In 1953, under the Prime Minister Mohammad Mossadegh, Iran tried to audit the Anglo-Iranian oil company, then nationalized Iranian oil. The U.S. and U.K. then supported a coup against the democratically elected leader to install the monarch, or the Shah, Mohammad Reza uh, Pahlavi, in operations Ajax and Boot, respectively. And I believe to this day, either him or his son are still alive, and the U.S. still has plans to put them uh, back into some type of power. Um, Guatemala. In 1954, the CIA orchestrated a coup against Jacob uh, Arbenz, who gave land to landless peasants and legalized the Communist Guatemalan Party of Labor, both of which affected the activities of the United Fruit Company, who lobbied for an overthrow, turned Guatemala into what they call a banana republic. Uh, Indonesia. In 1958, the CIA failed an attempt to have members of the Indonesian Armed Forces overthrow President Sukarno, though this failed. A later attempt would be successful. Enemy of socialism and national liberation. By 1960, American imperialism was well established and had turned what were European and Asian competitors into satellites, such as the founding NATO member countries, Japan, South Korea, and more. American hegemony was set up with the post-war developments, such as the Marshall Plan, the formation of NATO, and other institutions. And um, the countries in Southeast Asia that are in NATO, there's a different name for it, I believe. Uh, it starts with the S, but it's still NATO. The United States had a military industrial complex to profit off of the wars and make the U.S. economy run on them. Even Dwight D. Eisenhower warned of the threat of the growing military industrial complex as he left office. And he also taxed the rich like 90%. Uh, the late 40s and 50s were a time of escalating tension and the dream of peaceful coexistence following World War II shattering. This would only continue to heat up and get more deadlier into the 60s. This series will be continued with history of U.S. imperialism, height of the Cold War, which is 1960 to 1975. All right. Thank you for reading, comrade. And we'll break for our last round of questions and comments before we wrap up for tonight. Yeah, I just wanted to recommend the best book I've found on the Korean War is A Movable Object by A.B. Abrams. Um, it's pretty extensive and even goes into some of the more recent history, like after the fall of the Soviet Union. I found it very helpful um, in understanding the Korean War. Thanks. Thank you, comrade. And just so comrades know, the Korean War is, is enough to have an entire class on in the future. Um, it was just glossed over in this because we have to go over all these different interventions, but it is truly something that we should have a class on uh, in the future at some point. Yes. Yeah, no, I just think the Korean War is such a fascinating thing because it really is a forgotten war, right? But I also just wanted to emphasize just, you know, the, the very survival of the DPRK to this day through the collapse or you know, the counter-revolution of the Soviet Union uh, and their ability to enact, you know, it's just to provide for their own people is a testament to socialism's, you know, efficiency. Uh, if, if imagine basically essentially a state half the size of New Jersey 
being able to provide for all of its own material goods. Uh, and I know while it's not Korean, there's a movie that came out by the Chinese government last year, Battle of Lake Changjin. Uh, while it is you know somewhat propagandistic, it really goes to show and emphasize just how outmatched technologically and materially the Chinese and the Koreans and the communists were. I mean, you've got the biggest military in the world versus a country uh, that was essentially still in the feudal period less than a century ago. Right? And they managed to fight the, that America to a standstill was itself an achievement after being bombed essentially back into the Stone Age. Thank you. That's all. Thank you, comrade. And, and the Korean War itself is just one of those things that I feel is one of the uh, most dangerous moments during the Cold War. You actually had the People's Libera Liberation Army fighting the United States Army, Soviet Air Force engaging the United States Air Force. It was this close to a third world war, even back then. So we look at these old wars and we think that they're just proxy conflicts or something, but they could have easily ended up becoming a global conflict with uh, implications that could have spelled death for us all. Um, so thank you for that, comrade. Uh, two comments. I'll do a quick one on Korea since everybody's talking about it. One thing I remember from, from school is it was literally a page. They just try to push that one aside even more than World War I. But another fun little thing about it, I believe it was, I'm not sure if it was Truman or Eisenhower, but General MacArthur wanted to nuke North Korea. And he basically lost his job for it. And another um, neat one, it might fall into more of the category of the early 60s, but Iraq had something very similar happen that Iran did. It's called, it was called the Baghdad Pact. All right. Thank you for that, comrade. And yeah, just to add a little bit on the nuclear aspect for, of it for a second. Um, in Korea, uh, I believe that before the war, there was a suggestion to go ahead and just nuke uh, Pyongyang. But when the war was, uh, you know, in the midst of, of itself, um, there was a threat basically to nuke all of the Chinese cities, not the Korean cities, but the Chinese cities to go ahead and basically put them out of the war. Um, and I forget how close we actually got to carrying that out, but that was one of those nuclear uh, blackmails of the time. So thank you for bringing that up, comrade. Uh, Comrade General Secretary, Angelo from New York. Yeah, write down the name of this book, everybody here. It's an old book, still valuable. It's called The Hidden History of the Korean War. The author is I, the letter I, the letter F, and the last name is Stone, like a stone in the ground. S-T-O-N-E goes into the whole thing of the Korean War. This was written in the 50s when it was happening, right after the war, 52, 53, 54. So you have to read stuff that was written at the time. Very interesting. That's all. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. Okay. I was, before I say anything, I was going to say, I want to follow up with D'Angelo. I have stone was probably the most prominent uh, writer, uh, leftist writer uh, on, on many issues in during the 50s and the 60s. Many people, young people, don't know, are not familiar with his name. Uh, a lot of people talk about military operations, what we did, uh, you know, coups and, uh, and uh, military operations. 
one thing people fail to uh, recognize is that we were the greatest economic power in, in, in the world at that time. And we used our dollars just as effective as our military. Uh, France, and you know, it's funny that we talk about uh, people trying to take influence our elections, Russia, China, this country, Iran, everybody's trying to influence the United States elections. We actually uh, influenced the French and, uh, and Italian elections, where after the war, the communist parties were almost certain to take over. We threw, if you took today's dollars, 2023 dollars, would probably be billions of dollars. We flooded it into uh, those countries, uh, and, and so propaganda and helping build up the anti-communist parties, uh, although the communists always remained powerful for a number of years within coalitions, they never were able to take over completely and rule. And we even in South America, and uh, we did that in uh, Nicaragua, where uh, the Sandinistas were stupid enough, unlike the Cubans, to accede to holding so-called free elections the CIA was there with uh, money at the polls, the equivalent of some people even a week's pay. Uh, and we were handing it out to make sure that people voted right. And of course, the Sandinistas lost a narrow election. Uh, that shows you how, how uh, astute the uh, Communist uh, the Party of uh, Cuba was in refusing to knuckle down. Uh, Thank you, Conrad. Uh, yeah, um, uh, we didn't discuss it here. I think we should have a class on it um, in the future, but um, created in 1946 was uh, an organization called the School of Americas. Today it's called the Western Hemisphere Institute for Security Cooperation, but essentially it was where we took um, fascist leaders from South America, Central and South America, and train them in army military bases here in the United States. I think currently it's in uh, Georgia, it's called Fort Moore. But some of the graduates of this were um, leaders or military leaders under Pinochet and other, you know, and then another uh, one that most people probably have heard of was a Panamanian president, Manuel Noriega. So, uh, you know, I don't think a lot of people know too much about the School of Americas, but they trained fascist death squads that would go and murder communists, or in most cases, the communists or even uh, left opposition groups would just go missing. They, they never found them. They just disappeared, probably dead. But... Who knows? Yeah, and they also went ahead and trained the uh, El Salvadoran army, which committed the massacre at El Mazote, which was one of the worst massacres of women and children ever, and I believe still stands as the deadliest U.S.-backed massacre and the deadliest massacre in, in Central America in the 1980s. I uh, can take one more hand before we go ahead and wrap up for tonight. Yeah, um, I just want to, you know, say real, lastly, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people in the America look at Korea like they're, it's part of this like Eastern mysticism thing where they, they've always been 
fascinated with like the East and they look at Korea like, you know, they're the people there are all brainwashed. They think the people there are so stupid. They don't even real. they believe in unicorns and all kinds of stuff. And they don't believe Kim Jong-un uses the bathroom. And it's racist. It's, it's honestly, it's racist. You know, the fact that they have nukes is the only reason that they still exist. I mean, y'all know what happened with Gaddafi. Uh, same thing that would happen with Iran um, and North Korea, the U.S. They would it, South Korea with no time. They would they would take Korea if they didn't have nukes. It's just, um, you know, we got to always we got to support the DPRK because they're, you know, one of the last weekends of real, you know, good socialism without introducing markets and other things. They've stuck to, you know, their um, values. I think it's also impressive that at this point, I believe the Democratic People's Republic of Korea has existed for a longer time than the Soviet Union did. So it just goes to show when people talk about, oh, socialism only works on paper, it doesn't work in real life. I don't know. Over 70 years in multiple countries means it must work somehow. But I want to thank all the comrades for their comments and questions tonight. I think it was a really good class, and I've heard comrades say that they really like this series. So I'm glad that it's going as good as it is. Thank you very much. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, listen to our streams on Spotify, and chat with us on Reddit.